David Cronenberg's highly transgressive and subjective film adaptation of Naked Lunch may well be the most troubling and ravishing head movie since Eraserhead. It's also fundamentally a film about writing, even the film about writing. Naked Lunch from David Cronenberg from 1991, one of the old movies we're discussing this week. Our featured old movie this week is JFK. We're coming up on 11-22-63, the 50th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's assassination. So I want to get out in front of it and watch JFK again. And also because it's being discussed a lot recently in reviews of Oppenheimer, it's been cleverly referred to as Christopher Nolan's JFK. And as I've said earlier here on the podcast, you know, when he first pitched the film of Killian Murphy, and Killian Murphy really liked the script a lot and said, yeah, I'll do it. Nolan said to him, this is like one of those films of the 90s we used to love. He said, it's like, it's like an Oliver Stone movie. And you can see a lot of parallels with JFK. So riding the wave of Oppenheimer, which has made like $800 million now worldwide, which is an incredible success story for Nolan. It's his third most successful movie ever by box office, behind only a couple of the Dark Knight movies. I think Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Uh, amazing success. The fact he's made more money off Oppenheimer than Inception, Interstellar, it's uh, it's amazing. Anyway, so we're doing JFK. That's the main feature of the old movie. We're also doing Naked Lunch, because I happen to have that on my cable package. Our new movie this week is called Finest Kind. It's from Brian Koppelman. He is an Academy Award-winning screenwriter who wrote L.A. Confidential, which I do ask him about. He tells a good story about that. He's also a writer and director, which is what he's done with this film. It just premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. So uh, I interviewed Brian while he was there in Toronto. I hope everybody... Uh, enjoys what they have to say here about Finest Kind, which you'll hear at the end, Brian does say they already have a deal for it. So it's just, I believe it's through Paramount. So I'm not sure it's going to be streaming right away on Paramount Plus, if it'll be released in theaters, but you will see Finest Kind sooner rather than later. No wild card. The wild card I wanted to do this week was Weird or Great Actor, which Chris Cody had recommended to us. Uh, but Chris is unavailable today. He is on assignment, as I like to use the expression. He's very busy right now with the Dan Lebitard Show, week two of the NFL season. So Mondays are always a crash course for him. He also produces his dad's podcast. So there's just too much going on today. So no Cody today. Uh, we will shelve that for next time because uh, the audience seemed to want to hear this topic, which Chris first mentioned about Michael Shannon. Is he great or is he just weird? We'll give a selection of actors and do that in the weeks to come. Speaking of weeks to come, Scott Rogowski. Rags Time returns Next week, as Scott and I are going to discuss the 50th anniversary of an all-time great film, 1973's Last Tango in Paris. It's also highly controversial because of its salacious material and the revelations of Maria Schneider afterwards critical of Marlon Brando and director Bernardo Bertolucci. But it is still, I think, in many ways, a work of art. Rags has never seen it. I told him it's streaming on Fubo, so he's got a week to watch it right now on Fubo. And then we're going to get his thoughts on Last Tango and teasing ahead even further. October 2nd, as promised previously, the great Adam Amin, who is busy with Fox Sports, just called a terrific game as the Giants came roaring back yesterday. Adam called that game with Mark Slareth, a former ESPN guy. Uh, Adam is a good buddy of mine and is a massive fan of the Irishman. So after I watched it again, he texted me. He goes, dude, 10 years from now, people are going to realize what a great, great classic film that is. I said, why don't you come on and tell everybody that? Because everyone's tired of me talking about Marty all the time. So Adam Amin is coming on October 2nd. A previous thank you to previous guests, Scott Spinelli. A lot of buzz at 40 Hearts Way, MLB Network, about Scott's performance. Everyone really enjoyed him. He will be back another time. A very funny Ethan Kleinberg, who is a former MLB Network producer, now dominating Fox Sports 1. Kleinberg called me with specific thoughts, pointed out the fact that in the midst of me dropping all of 
the excerpts from Spinelli's book. I didn't actually mention the title of the book. So in case I missed it, congratulations with a question mark. That's the title of my friend Scott Spinelli's book. Congratulations with a question mark. I encourage you all to go to Amazon right now and buy the book as I did. I, I borrowed the book from Chris Collins for the purpose of the interview after Spinelli busted my chops. A couple of days later, I bought the book. He has now signed the book for me, personal inscription. Guess what? If you buy the book, maybe I can uh, put it work. I, I can even get your personal inscription, okay? If I if you uh, grease the right wheels here, I can talk to Scott about that. But go buy his book. It's $15. It's on Amazon. It's terrific. And also, a big time thank you to my man, Cabby. Of course, great, great friend of mine. We've been friends forever, and uh, he was really funny last week. Talking about Get on the Bus, for those who haven't seen that Spike Lee film, like my friend John LeBoy, I'm going to bring him to work, bring him the DVD. I hope everyone goes and checks it out. Like Cab said, he watched it on YouTube, I think. I was ordered to buy it, um, but definitely check out Get on the Bus and support all of Cab's work. You can see him on Twitter and Instagram, uh, forthcoming interviews with notable sports personalities. Kyle Tucker, and of course, he'll be busy with Hockey Night in Canada. Still laughing. I think the best moment of that was when he put made Cody visibly uncomfortable when he asked him about previous producer on the Dan Levitard show. I also enjoyed when I mentioned uh, <laughs> when I mentioned what Izzy has gone through recently. And Cap's response was, "You want me to comment on that?" Uh, but those sports documentaries that he and I both talked about, a lot of those are available on streaming. So make sure you go check out Tyson when we were kings, Hoop Dreams, among others, to check out. All right. As always, please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. And as I mentioned, those previous episodes with Scotty and Cabby and many others and the episodes to come involving Scotty, Rogowski, and Adam Amin. Make sure you check those out and give us some love there. We'll get to JFK in just a second. Before we do, the update on Mr. Martin Scorsese. As I told last week, for those unaware, October 27th, Montclair Film Festival, An Evening with Marty who, by the way, is on the cover of Time Magazine. This might be the first Time Magazine I think I've bought in about 30 years. I have to go find a local bookstore now, perhaps in Hackenstack, New Jersey. I can get my hands on a Time Magazine. The cover's exquisite. Marty's face and just says the magic of Martin Scorsese. Stephanie Zakarik, longtime Time film critic, uh, wrote the byline, so I'm sure she has the cover story on Marty, so cannot wait for that. Killers of the Flower Moon, his new film, October 20th. Again, if you missed it last week, Montclair Film Festival, Stephen Colbert, who is a Montclair resident and is doing all he can to help with the Montclair Film Festival, pulled some strings, and he's got Marty, one night only, October 27th. Of course I'd be there, but killer timing happens to be game one of the World Series. I may be in Atlanta, might be in LA, might be in Baltimore. I'm not going to be in Newark, New Jersey, which is where that event is going to take place. But I'll send my wife as proxy. So tickets were on sale via Amex holders. I'm not an American Express guy, shame on me. But I waited until Saturday at 10 a.m. to buy the ticket. Went on right away. Most expensive ticket to go see Marty, $750. That is dead center, front row. I mean, you could you could smell him at that point. You know, maybe like when Leno used to come out and shake hands with the audience. If, if I was in that seat, hand outstretched, Marty would come and shake my hand. Can you please come on Cinephile? So I'm going with my wife, and I, she says, I'm not, you're not paying $750. Okay, fair enough. The cheapest seat's like $80. bucks. you are way back in the nosebleeds. That's not going to happen. So most of the seats, the ones that I think is pretty good is around $200, $250. Then there's like second row, the first side of the aisle, right aisle. I said, well, I don't know if Colbert's sitting on the right, Marty's sitting on the right, but that's a pretty good seat. Your second row, maybe third row, that's around 350 So eventually we settle on third row, slightly on, to the right of the stage. Hopefully Marty's on the right. If not, he's on the left. You get a better shot at you know, getting his eye line. 350 ish plus tax, $413 I just dropped for my wife to go see Marty. So maybe she can smuggle in a GoPro. Maybe you can figure out the iPhone just to record the entire time. 
I have to get in touch. Maybe, maybe we can somehow figure out a way here. Metal Art can get me in touch. She can go as a member of the media, right? As a member of Cinephile and just somehow have access to recording it just so I can hear every single word. Because even if she's feverishly taking notes, I mean, she's not going to remember every single thing that Marty's saying. But she'll be there for me. And uh, I said, you know, you got to at least try to get his attention. Being Muslim, she wears a headscarf. So I said, wear like the brightest headscarf you have, you know, bright yellow headscarf. And then wear my black T-shirt directed by Martin Scorsese. Or wear my Raging Bull shirt. Or wear my taxi driver shirt, which has Travis Bickle, bloodied hand pointing to his temple. Either way, combination, you're going to be the only, probably the only Muslim woman there. Bright headscarf, Scorsese shirt, maybe a cinephile shirt, pom-poms, whatever it's going to take to get Marty's attention. You'll be able to get his attention. Just just when he first walks out, gives you a wave. You can say he made eye contact, and at least I can say I made eye contact. Of course, I've seen Marty speak before three times, as a matter of fact. Taxi driver, 40th anniversary, Alice Tully Hall. I was way at the back. Uh, I saw him for The Irishman, which, again, Adam Means going to be joining us in a couple weeks. That one I was there. Again, uh, pretty good seats, but, I mean, at least 30 rows back. And I saw him last year, Personality Crisis, One Night Only, his new documentary, which he premiered at the New York Film Festival, which is now available on Showtime. So it's not like I haven't breathed the same oxygen as Scorsese, but I've never shaken his hand. I've obviously never interviewed him, never been that close. So if it was just me, I'd pay the 750 bucks and just, like I said, pull a, pull a Leno and just try to jump up on the stage and just shake his hand. And then I'd be escorted out. And for those who are lamenting, perhaps on my behalf, or perhaps mocking and laughing at, me, at my plight, to be clear, I'd rather be at Game 1 of the World Series than this event. As much as I adore Marty, it's not like I'm interviewing him. If I was interviewing him, that's different. <laughs> if Colbert was like, oh, my God, I've been stricken with laryngitis. Is anybody here capable of interviewing Martin Scorsese? You know, it's like a scene in a sign book, a stanza. Is anyone here a marine biologist? Then I would volunteer my services and go, you know what? I'm actually the perfect man for this job, Stephen. I can interview Martin Scorsese. And with all arrogance, perhaps better than you, my friend. I'm locked in on this subject. So it's not like I'm interviewing him. But... Would have been nice to breathe the same air as him. My wife will be doing it on my behalf for the small tune of $413. Let's get in the movie, shall we? JFK. Hadn't seen it in a long time. I said, I got to watch JFK again, especially after all the talk around Oppenheimer and how it's Nolan's JFK. It's a remarkable achievement. And it's even more so because of the fact, you know, when it came out, it was 1991. I saw it when I was... 13 years old and it was such a cause celebre when it came out like you can't really appreciate now unless you're alive at that time how much everybody was talking about jfk and the warren commission and jim garrison and oliver stone conspiracy theorist and who killed jfk i mean it was everywhere i mentioned marty being on the cover of time magazine i'm sure oliver stone was or kevin coster or entertainment weekly and people magazine everything december 20th 1991 the film comes out made over 205 million dollars Again, that pales in comparison to Oppenheimer, which is over $800 million worldwide. But for a three-hour and three-minute film, remarkable box office. And a reminder of what a brilliant filmmaker Oliver Stone was. I mean, he had this stretch where he was phenomenal. Platoon, Best Director, 86. Best Director, Born on the Fourth of July, 89. This comes out in 91. I love Natural Born Killers, 94. I'm one of the few who really enjoys uh, Nixon, which came out in 95. I mean, there's there's a lot to love about JFK. So even with the running time of three hours and three minutes, which was especially off-putting to a 13-year-old young AV. Now watching it, I, I can appreciate it so much more. So it's very historically accurate, but of course, not without controversy. Here's the story, in case you don't know. 
Acclaimed Oliver Stone drama presents the investigation of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy led by New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, played by Kevin Costner. When Garrison begins to doubt conventional thinking on the murder, he faces government resistance. And after the killing of suspected assassin Lee Harvey Oswald, played by Gary Oldman, he closes the case. Later, however, Garrison reopens the investigation, finding evidence of an expensive conspiracy behind Kennedy's death. And that's the when you mention Oliver Stone, it's it's word association. You go right away to conspiracy theorist. Matter of fact, a couple of years ago, I didn't watch it, but JFK at 30, Oliver Stone, the lasting impact of America's most dangerous movie that came out, two hour Showtime documentary back in 2021. So interesting how at that point in time, Stone was still talking about, I haven't seen that documentary. I'm sure if you're a big fan of JFK's, you've seen it. I think it's available on Prime Video. I don't know how much more he was able to say there, but it just adds further color to one of his most brilliant films and certainly one of his most controversial films as well. The movie starts out the first six, seven minutes as Martin Sheen's narration. It hits the ground running. You know, he's talking immediately about JFK, his rise to prominence, and all of that entailed. And of course, the assassination. Then, boom, we go to Jim Garrison, played by Kevin Costner, and he's overseeing what's happening and away the story goes. It's just so densely plotted that I, I'm just so impressed I was able to put it all together. There's so many memorable quotes that go to the movie. What really stands out watching it now, it's a historical drama on this popular conspiracy theory, and yet a lot of it seems so believable and so relatable. And basically, Costner's character, Jim Garrison, is somebody who is searching for the truth. You know, He's somebody who will not accept this pat, convenient story that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. The tagline for it was, the story that won't go away. And it's obviously a very memorable movie in terms of its quotes. But the cast is really what stands out. Now, Coster, I'm watching him. My wife says, oh, Coster, he's amazing. Oscar, I mean, I go, eh. it's not one of his best performances. I say he's a little bit miscast. And the New Orleans accent goes in and out. But you start to get used to him as the story develops. And he's obviously a major star. And, uh, you know, when Kevin Coster's in a film, he's always holding your attention. I wouldn't say he's the strength of the film. Instead, it's this remarkable supporting cast. Very early on, you see Walter Matthau. Amazing, playing a government operator who has a key conversation with Kevin Costner's character, Jim Garrison, on the airplane. And he basically says to him, you know, why do all these things happen? It's because of money. It's because of war. You know, war fuels everything. War is how governments make money. So think about that. That's kind of your first tip. Later on, he goes and talks to Jack Lemmon. That's right. Academy Award winner Jack Lemmon is in JFK. Jack Lemmon gets pistol whipped by none other than Ed Asner. Also memorable scene, Ed Asner accuses Lemon of being a communist, pistol whips the guy. Later on, he gets arrested. And so Garrison starts interviewing Jack Lemon. And very quickly, Jack Lemon is squeamish about saying too much. Other character that's got brought in, and this is absolutely shocking, is Joe Pesci. An unrecognizable Joe Pesci shows up with unforgettable eyebrows. They clearly look painted on, big and thick, and clearly wearing a wig. And he starts being interviewed, David Ferry. And he's talking about Lee Harvey Oswald, how he knows him, and this entire underworld of partying. And then it gets into homosexuality. And Joe Pesci's character parting away with, is he bisexual? Is he just homosexual? Clay Bertrand. Or is his real name Clay Shaw? That's right. Tommy Lee Jones, unforgettable in the film as well. And you get one scene which is rich with comic overtones in which Kevin Bacon shows up. Jim Garrison goes to interview Kevin Bacon, who's in prison. Kevin Bacon's a male prostitute. He tells him the story of going to Tommy Lee Jones's house, Clay Bertrand, or is it Clay Shaw? And he goes, we just partied all night. David Ferry shows up, Joe Pesci. At one point, they're like dressed in dread, like makeup on, like wigs, and slapping around Tommy Lee Jones. It looks like he's all painted in gold. And he's like, all right, you guys are just having some big sex party. 
What does this have to do with anything? What does it have to do with JFK? Lee Harvey Oswald, is he involved? Is he gay? He's friends with you guys. He's part of the subculture. He's partying with you guys as well. Okay. What does it all mean? What does it all matter? And Kevin Bacon has an unbelievable line to Kevin Costner. He says, you don't even know what you're dealing with here. He says, I, I've got nothing to hide. Like, I'm telling you right now, these guys were talking about being in on a conspiracy to kill JFK, that they know all about these things. And he's like, I got nothing to lose. I'm in prison. And he says to Jim Garrison, you don't know anything. You've never been in the ass before. I'm like, oh, what a line to say. Costner says, OK, I, I don't know if I need any more from you here. Nice chatting with you. Not sure we're going to need you on the stand. And then as he walks away, Bacon says to me, he's like, you're, not, you're not a bad looking fella. When I get out of here, I'm going to look you up. We're going to have a conversation. Trying to get like a he's, he's a John here working for their angle. Anyways, bacon's really good. Lemon's really good. And then he hosts shows up. John Candy, amazing, plays Dean Andrews. And his sweaty face during his talk with Jim Garrison is real. Apparently, he was petrified at the idea of appearing in a dramatic film with actors like Gary Oldman and Donald Sutherland. My man's coming off of playing trains and automobiles four years earlier. He sweated profusely throughout all his scenes. Now it works because it is, after all, set in New Orleans. But it's a great scene where Costner's basically trying to get some information out of him and saying, hey, just because we're old buddies, don't think it doesn't mean I'm going to drag your ass into court and put you on the stand, whatever. And, and Candy's kind of funny, he's profusely sweating, big sunglasses. Hey, don't get mad at me, Daddy-o. His accent, a little bit more successful, I think, than Kevin Costner's. Then you get the best cameo of them all when it comes to a key character, and that's Donald Sutherland. Sutherland shows up. He's got a really long monologue in the movie. And according to Oliver Stone, both he and Kevin Costner memorized those speeches. Costner had thought one take was necessary for his speech. I don't know how many takes end up doing, but it's an impressive monologue. And Swing Costner's in D.C. He's approached by Donald Sutherland, noted Canadian. Fedora on. Need to speak to you. I got some information for you. Okay. And he says something like, you know, Costner's like, who are you? He's like, listen, let's not get involved with names. I've seen some things. I've done some things. You're on the right path. Let's have a conversation. He goes and takes him out to a bench, an absolutely riveting conversation, in which he furthers Matthau's point. He says, listen, who benefits Kennedy's assassination? What was Kennedy looking to do? Civil rights movement, empowering blacks, but also he was looking to withdraw troops, trying to get out of Vietnam, Cuban Missile Crisis, what was happening there? Who's being impacted? You have to look at the consequences of what JFK's policies were and then do the math on this. And that's where he really gets the wheels turning for Garrison. You know, with regards to Clay Bertrand, or is it Clay Shaw, Tommy Lee Jones' character, he's this gay ne'er-do-well who's clearly lying. When Costner brings him in on Easter Sunday, by the way, he brings in Tommy Lee Jones for an informal questioning, and he tells Tommy Lee Jones lying through everything. Every single character he mentions, David Ferry, Patsy's character, no, never heard of him, never heard of him, don't know what you're talking about, okay, see you later. He knows he's lying. And so Sutherland helps him to realize, hey, this is more than just some guy in New Orleans. This goes up to the highest levels of government. This is CIA. I worked for Black Ops. Black Ops, the people that get things done at the highest level. You know, when JFK was assassinated, he was overseas. He goes, I'm already seeing the information in print before it's being released to the American public. How does that happen? It's because the government's involved. Costner says something like, you know, Will you testify? After Sutherland gives this incredible 10-minute monologue, and he, as he refers to himself, Mr. X is like, are you nuts? Like, <laughs> I'm not testifying. I didn't even tell my name, for God's sakes. I'm just giving you a bit of the keys to the test. I'm giving you some clues, okay? But you're on the right path. Now, continue on the scavenger hunt, but you're making headway. Great scene from Sutherland, who's also really good in backdraft, speaking of wonderful cameos. Again, the story develops as Garrison gets in deeper. Stone is, is balancing what is happening as far as the factual information, along with the personal life. These scenes I don't find as effective. They're fine. Sissy Spacek, Clint, his wife, has got five kids. 
you know, kids want to spend time with them. Garrison's too busy. I, I just don't think it's that well developed. So it comes across as fairly cliched. Uh, it's a fairly thankless role for SpaceX. She's basically haranguing him. And he's like, don't you realize I'm trying to do more important things? I'm trying to figure out who killed JFK. And you want me to spend time with you and the kids on Easter? Like, I'm not, I'm not in the mood for bunnies right now. I believe it's the exact line. Later on, he drops a couple F-bombs in front of her, swearing in front of the kids. He's pissed off. So I appreciate that Stone's trying to show the full character. It's not just work-related. But again, with, with that kind of a subplot, either you've got to go deeper and show how the relationship first came to be, how they first got married, you know, issues with them, et cetera, or it, it, it's kind of just, it's just backstory. Two of the reasons why I love the movie Hoffa so much. Hoffa, Danny DeVito doesn't even bother as the director and Mamet as a screenwriter with Hoffa's personal life. Like you're just watching the story. It's all about the union developing. He's going after RFK. Boom. All of a sudden he's had the Teamsters happens to be married. Okay, sure. Like nobody cares about that aspect of his life. With Hoffa, it was all about business and work, et cetera. So in this case, I, I don't think Garrison's personal life is all that interesting. Basically, he's neglecting his family in pursuit of JFK and finding what happened. Okay, cool. Got it. Lee Harvey Oswald's arrest, by the way, filmed in the real Texas theater where it happened. Money from the producers helped to restore the theater and keep it in business. Again, this helps the whole ideas of the verisimilitude of this entire movie. The Murder of Oswald by Jack Ruby, filmed on location, the actual basement garage of Dallas City Hall, where the real-life shooting took place. You know, Stone's trying to make this feel as believable and as real as possible. He showed the film, I mentioned, December of 91, all of Congress on Capitol Hill. It led to the 1992 Assassinations Disclosure Act. This act allowed the American public to see important documents regarding JFK's assassination in the period of 25 years. Original year for such disclosure was 2029. On the 26th of October 2017, the Trump administration released a great part of the documents known as the JFK file. So the next time someone says, well, what can a movie really do? This did quite a bit. <laughs> this took this right to the government and started to get things done. And after reading Garrison's book, Oliver Stone immediately bought the rights with his own money. I mean, one thing with Oliver Stone is you can mock him and say he's a conspiracy theorist, but he also is a great dramatist and a brilliant filmmaker. and He knows what's going to be well done. Uh, when he spoke at the National Press Club about the movie, someone asked if he meant to insinuate that the government was involved in the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy, as well as JFK. He replied with a simple one-word answer, yes. One more thought, by the way, I meant to mention on Sutherland. His memorable monologue as the mysterious Washington informant known as X lasted for 16 minutes. Amazing. And again, back to verisimilitude. The real Jim Garrison never made the speech that Costner makes at the end of the movie, but taken from several speeches they did give and some of it in the book. Anyway, story's building up. Pesci comes back in. Amazing character. Because now that it's become public, Jim Garrison is opening up investigation to JFK. He's got an incredible scene where he's just freaking out, so stressed. He's like, don't you understand? I'm not going to speak anywhere. They're going to get to me. They're going to get to you, etc. A reminder what a great character actor Pesci is. A couple scenes later, he's dead. Devastating. You see a shot of him. Again, the painted on eyebrows, but no longer wearing the wig. He's bald. It looks like he overdosed. Was it a suicide? Was he given this medication by somebody else? Again, very mysterious. Not sure what happened. But still, they got to keep digging. Got to keep finding. They just lost one of their potential key witnesses. And JFK lurches on. The Mammoth production shot in only 72 days, which is amazing. They made Dealey Plaza look the same as it did in 1963. It cost $4 million. And the story keeps building, keeps building, keeps building until we get to the finale. One thing I meant to mention about John Candy, he was picked by Oliver Stone, by the way, to portray Dean Andrews because he bore a striking resemblance to the man. It wasn't like he was a big fan of uh, Uncle Buck. <laughs> Oliver Stone's like, you look like him, you got the role. And Oliver Stone has called this the favorite film of his own, and you really start to see it 
once it builds up to the finale. 223 mark after he has a scene with his wife a little unnecessary they make love you know he kind of makes up to her a little bit bam courtroom and this is really all i remember about jfk and i think what most people do remember about jfk from the 223 mark until 303 if my math is right the final 40 minutes are in the courtroom riveting absolutely engrossing as good as anything oliver stone's ever made because this is the point where it's kind of like a basketball player the point guard says okay you guys can clear out let's go one-on-one you know, Kobe as a shooting guard waves everybody off. It's just me. We're going one on one. I'm going to shoot it. Same thing for Oliver Stone. It's like Brian De Palma. Owen Gladman once said about De Palma. He said he loves the point where he says, All right, no more script. I'm just going to direct this sucker. Let's go. Final 30 minutes of Scarface. Think of the final 15 minutes of Carlito's Way. Pacino going up the escalator Grand Central, running through the subway system. Similarly for Stone, he goes, Okay, I gave you all the backdrop. I gave you a bunch of colorful characters. Now I'm going to get to the really good stuff, which is there's no way. Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, and it's rivetingly brought to life, particularly the famous line, back and to the left, back and to the left, made for comedic level on Seinfeld with Keith Hernandez. That is one magic loogie, a reference to when Costner says that's one magic bullet. And it's, it's amazing to see how he explains. There's no way the bullet could have come in this side and gone this way. And the first shot kind of caught everyone's attention. Second shot grazed the president, et cetera. I believe it's the sixth shot was the fatal shot. Head wound, boom, head blasted open. And that's where, from where Oswald was in the book depository, it's impossible that that kind of a shot would cause that kind of a feedback. And Garrison goes into detail, saying, listen, multiple shooters, perhaps the mafia's involved. Like, I love the mafia angle to it. To me, I'm like the mob involved. Old man McCarthy said, get my, get my guy elected, get my son elected candidate. They do so. And then he starts going after the mob guys, or specifically his brother, RFK, just trying to crush all these guys. Hoffa, et cetera. They're like, screw this, man. We're taking out JFK. <laughs> we helped out the old man. Now he's, he's putting us all in prison. And Stone is not discredited that, but he, he's really going after further further levels here. He's saying it's the government. It's the CIA. He, he calls Lyndon Johnson an accomplice. Garrison does that in his speech. Calls Nixon an accomplice. This goes to the highest levels of government to kill John F. Kennedy. And it leads to the question of what is true, what isn't true. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't think Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, just if you look at the evidence. I've been to Dallas, by the way. I've been to Dealey Plaza. I was there a few years ago for college football. Uh, and I said, I got to go see this. And it was so jarring to me. There's an X in the middle of the road. And that's where JFK was shot. And the creepiest part of it is people are obviously lined up to take pictures. And I swear, I looked over at one point. It's a traffic light right there. So if it's green, obviously cars are gone. Once it's red, people go and stand on that X and get their picture. They're taking selfies. This one couple was like beaming. Like I swear to God, it was like two thumbs up. Hey, we're here. JFK got his head blown off. I'm like, oh my God. Uh, I did not want to get a picture where that was. I, I think I took a picture of the general area, but I'm like, I don't, I don't want to stand on the X. I'm like, hey, look, look, look. Maybe I could reenact what happened to JFK. But all around there, there are videos and pictures and uh, people selling magazines, brochures, you know, talking about the conspiracy theory, what's true, what isn't true. So it's it's a story that will that will never stop, will always engage. And um, it's heartbreaking to think about it. I just I still can't believe a president was assassinated. And maybe all at one point Jim Garrison even says, and you feel like he's a proxy for Oliver Stone. He goes, you know, you guys probably all think I'm nuts. And maybe Oliver Stone is a little bit nuts, but maybe there's some truth there as well. It's a it's an amazing recreation. That final forty minutes again, Costner's monologue in particular, saying the importance of searching for truth and holding government accountable, and you know, it's by the people, of the people, for the people, and the choice is yours. It's, it's amazing. And I, I, like I said, I think his accent goes in and out. 
things a little bit miscast, but that final scene, he stuck the landing, and it is a remarkable movie. Especially a movie like this, you think, okay, well, what's the happy ending? Well, there isn't one. Clay Shaw, who he's putting on the stand, Tommy Lee Jones' character, the verdict comes back that he's not not guilty. And so that last scene is Costner walking out saying, like, I'm not going to rest. He's talking to the media who's surrounding him and his wife and his one of his kids. He's like, I'm not going to stop. We're going to keep trying. We're going to go to different levels of government. And then the movie fades to black, and you've got the scroll coming up uh, saying what Garrison was able to do and you know further challenges towards what happened, the sealed documents, et cetera. So it's, um, it's a riveting movie, man, especially if you liked Oppenheimer. I think you'll definitely check out JFK. If you haven't seen it like me in 30 years, go watch it again. I watched it recently here in my cable package. I'm sure it's available for streaming. It's it's amazing. One other nugget here on Joe Pesci. When he's ranting about the assassination, he says no one will ever solve the JFK murder. He utters the famous line, it's a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma. Paraphrasing Winston Churchill's quotation made in a radio broadcast in October of 1939. I cannot forecast you the action of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Perhaps there's a key. The key is Russian national interest. So interesting that there. And also... One of the reasons why it is known that Clay Shaw was a homosexual is that FBI director J. Edgar Hoover kept a file on Shaw and had the FBI spy on his romantic life. And another nugget for Pesci once said he never wanted to work with Oliver Stone again. He felt that Stone was a very demanding director. I'm sure my man Marty isn't easy. I'm sure Marty expects a lot, but Marty's the best. Pesci will work with him no matter what. Pesci's retired. He's been busy golfing. Only after De Niro cajoled him into making The Irishman, and he said, listen, it's me, it's Marty Klein. He's like, all right, fine. For you guys, I'll do it. And gets another Best Supporting Actor nomination. Oliver Stone, not interested. <laughs> Did not want to do it again. It's pretty funny. couple more nuggets. Veteran movie credit for The Washington Post. Pat Dowell had a, her 34-word capsule review for the January issue rejected by editor John Limpert, a known opponent of the film. Limpert didn't want to pause to review for a film that he regarded as treacherous. Dow resigned in protest. Imagine that. He gave a review of a movie. You support it. The guy goes, no, I'm not going to support a movie that's being critical of the government. Okay, I'll just resign then. We're good. One more for you. In an interview, Kevin Costner once revealed he rehearsed in his rather long trial summation the jury while in the swimming pool. His mother was correcting him from the script. There you go. Kevin Costner's mom getting it done. Yellowstone, by the way, available right now on CBS. I mentioned that while watching football. They're like, watch Yellowstone from the beginning. Episode one now on CBS. I also have to mention Robert Richards did an amazing job. I mean, for the recreation of the assassination at Dilly Plaza, they had to pay the Dallas City Council a large amount of money to hire police to reroute traffic, close down streets for three weeks. Stone only had 10 days to shoot the entire sequence. The director of photography, Robert Richardson, employed two 35-millimeter cameras, five 60-millimeter cameras, 14 different film stocks for the sequence. And again, that's another comp you can make to Oppenheimer is the use of the black and white and the different film stocks, it, it's definitely something that I now that I've, I've watched it again, I can really see what Nolan's doing and appreciate what he did. As far as Oscar nominees, Oliver Stone was nominated for Best Director. Tommy Lee Jones, fantastic, up for Best Actor, Supporting Role. The movie was nominated for Best Picture, Best Writing as well. Uh, screenplay based on material previously published. Oliver Stone co-wrote it, and it won Best Cinematography, Robert Richardson. Amazing work. Uh, was also nominated for Best Sound. Best Music Original Score, John Williams, Spielberg's longtime composer. That's right. Music sounds a little bit familiar. That's because it's him. And honestly, as great as the cinematography is, the best part of this movie might be the editing. Best Film Editing, Joe Hutching and Pietro Scalia. So two Academy Awards for the editing and the cinematography, and obviously a slew of other nominees with the BAFTA Awards, Satellite Awards, et cetera, et cetera. JFK, a well-reserved, remarkable film. All right. A thought or two on Naked Lunch. That's right. From David Cronenberg, just about as 
weird and subversive a movie as you're going to get. But I said, I got to check it out. Why? David Cronenberg is Canadian and he makes some weird movies. And again, it was on my cable package and I had some time and I said, I've never seen it. The, the poster is just so bizarre. It's just a, a man and <laughs> a fedora and then a typewriter for a face. And I'm like, is this, is this guy like a typewriter face? Is he like leather face? What's happening here? And if you ever look up, as I'm doing now, some of the pictures, it's just these freakish looking animals, these bugs. They're just so disgusting. Here's the story. Blank face bug killer Bill Lee, played by Peter Weller, and his dead-eyed wife Joan, played by Judy Davis, like to get high on Bill's pest poisons, poet pals. After meeting the devilish Dr. Benway, Roy Scheider, Bill gets a drug made from a centipede. Upon indulging, he accidentally kills Joan takes orders from his typewriter-turned-cockroach, ends up in a constantly mutating Mediterranean city, and learns that his hip friends have published his work, which he doesn't remember writing. It's referred to as subversive, disgusting, and disturbing. 71% Rotten Tomatoes. We're talking 85% for JFK. But I got to tell you, it's fantastic. I, I really enjoyed it. Schlock wave. The result is a hilarious, weird, bugged-out, noirish mystery about addiction, paranoia, sexuality, and creativity. I don't even know how to describe it. It's one of those movies that's so difficult to categorize. It's just bizarre. And either you're going to love it or you're going to hate it. Or like me, you loved it and at times hated it because you had no idea what the hell was going on. But it's still memorable. And that's sometimes all you're looking for in a movie. Can we make this movie memorable? It's surrealist. I've never read the book. It's written by William S. Burroughs. Same name back in 1959. Previously thought to be unfilmable. Like No one can make this movie. And it was a box office flop, by the way. $17 million budget, made $2.6 million, but did win numerous honors. National Society of Film Critics gave it Best Director, seven Genie Awards for the uninitiated. Those are the Canadian Oscars. In fact, Best Picture it won. But people just were not going to see this movie about a man who's an exterminator whose wife is getting high using insecticide as a recreational drug, and then he ends up killing her, and then there's a beetle talking to him, and then there's more bugs speaking to him. I mean, at one point, the character system, are you a gay slur? And he says, a gay slur? No, not by nature. He goes, well, maybe this guy can help you out. He gets in a frame, and there's this, this giant bug starts having a conversation with him. It just defies description. It's just so bizarre, and yet so memorable and forgettable and funny. Stanley Cooper tried to make the movie, by the way. He attempted to adapt it into a film years ago. was unsuccessful. So people have wanted to make Naked Lunch for a long time. And Cronenberg himself said it was necessary to throw the book away as a direct adaptation. It would have been far too expensive and would be banned in every country in the world. The story of William Tell. He intended the film to be shot in Tangier. Welcome to Tangier. But the Gulf War prevented him from filming in North Africa. They couldn't receive insurance. So he massively rewrote the script for a few days before filming due to being unable to shoot in Tangiers. Crazy. They got a lot of great special effects. Chris Wallace, uh, they got... 50 bug typewriters trying to get the special effects done. Film score by Howard Shore is very memorable. Again, it came out in 1991. I, I wish it had done better, but as far as the critics were concerned, I mean, Roger Ebert gave it two and a half stars. I admired it in an abstract way. I felt repelled by the material on a visceral level. There was so much dryness, death, and despair here, and a life spitting itself with no joy. Janet Maslin, the New York Times. For the most part, this is a coolly riveting film, and even a darkly entertaining one, at least for audiences with steel nerves, a predisposition towards Mr. Burroughs, and a willingness to meet Mr. Cronenberg halfway through. The gaunt, unsmiling Mr. Weller, Peter Weller, who is in RoboCop, he looks exactly right, brings a perfect offhandedness to his disarming dialogue. Richard Corliss of Times said it was way too colorful, cute, in a repulsive way, with his crawly special effects. David Anson of Newsweek. Obviously, this is not everyone's cup of weird tea. You must have a taste for the aesthetics of disgust. 
For those up to the dare, it's one clamorly compelling movie. And one of my favorite critics, Owen Glaberman, give it a B-plus for Entertainment Weekly. Peter Weller, the poker face star of RoboCop, greets all the hallucinogenic weirdness with a doleful, matter-of-fact deadpan that grows more likable as the movie goes on. The actor's steely robo-stare has never been more compelling. By the end, he has turned Burroughs' stone-cold protagonist, a man with no feelings, into a mordantly touching hero. By the way, Cronenberg said of the novel, he felt that Burroughs' subversive, allegorically political depiction of drugs and homosexuality became merely aesthetic. Honestly, you got to watch the Criterion film. If you really want to get deep into this, the Criterion collection's got some weird stuff in this film as well. Whenever Next time someone says, hey, Halloween's around the corner, what's a really good weird movie? Uh, you can go, hey, you know, have you ever seen Naked Lunch? <laughs> David Cronenberg? I heard that one's got some pretty good stuff in there. Like, really? What's it all about? Oh, it's Excriminator, Bugs, Bugs Talking. I mean, at one point, this all closed with this last thought because it's just so, so bizarre. He's driving Peter Weller's character. And he goes, did I ever tell you about the man who taught his asshole to talk? His whole abdomen would move up and down, you dig? Farting out the words. It was unlike anything I ever heard. Bubbly, thick, stagnant sound. A sound you could smell. This man worked for the carnival, you dig? And the start with it was a likely novelty ventriloquial act. After a while, the ass started talking on its own. He would go in without anything prepared, and his ass would ad lib and toss the gags back at him every time. Then it developed sort of teeth like little raspy, incurving hooks and started eating. He thought this was cute at first and built an act around it, but the asshole would eat its way through his pants and start talking on the street, <laughs> shouting at it wanted equal rights. It would get drunk too and have crying jags. Nobody loved it. And it wanted to be kissed, same as any other mouth. Finally, it talked all the time, day and night. You could hear him for blocks, screaming at it to shut up, beating at it with his fists, and sticking candles up it. But nothing did any good. And the asshole said to him, it is you who will shut up in the end, not me, because we don't need you around here anymore. I can talk and eat and shit. After that, he began waking up in the morning with transparent jelly, like a tadpole's tail all over his mouth. He would tear it off his mouth, and the pieces would stick to his hands like burning gasoline jelly and grow there. So finally, his mouth sealed over, and the whole head would have amputated spontaneously except for the eyes, you dig? That's the one thing that the asshole couldn't do was see. It needed the eyes. Nerve connections were blocked and infiltrated and atrophied, so the brain couldn't give orders anymore. It was trapped inside the skull, sealed off. For a while, you could see the silent, helpless suffering of the brain behind the eyes. And then finally, the brain must have died because the eyes went out and there was no more feeling in them than a crab's eye at the end of a stock. Naked Lunch, four stars. JFK, four stars. Now time for our new movie and our special guest. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, real pleasure to bring in Academy Award winner Brian Helgeland. This is a guy who has made some terrific films over the years. He wrote the scripts for L.A. Confidential, for which he won an Academy Award, Mystic River, Man on Fire. He's directed Payback and Night's Tale, and his new film is terrific, finest kind. It's premiering in my hometown of Toronto. Toronto Film Festival is where I'm sure the uh, ovations will be uh, strong and rapturous. It's another terrific movie from Brian Helgeland. Brian, great to see you, man. Thanks for giving us a few minutes. Uh, Arno, thanks for having me. I hope... Uh, I hope uh... Your crystal ball reads correctly. <laughs> well, it was great being able to watch the film. And I want to start with Ben Foster. I just think he's a terrific actor, Brian. Every time I see him, I said he's doing so much, even when he's doing so little. Meaning, he's not overacting. It's just an expression, a look in his eyes. I looked up, he's from Boston. It makes sense he'd know this story. Again, for those who are unfamiliar, it's a story about two brothers. It involves fishing and some danger and Tommy Lee Jones and all the rest of it. But let's start with Ben. Hell or High Water, The Messenger. What was it about him that you wanted him for this role? Yeah, well, Ben's an inhabitor, as as I like to say. He becomes the guy. And um, it's not method acting. It's not. It's just he becomes the guy. And uh, so he's Tom Eldridge. He's not Ben Foster anymore. In fact, I very early on on my phone, I changed his name from Ben Foster to Tom Eldridge um, when he called. He was that guy. I don't know. I don't know who Ben Foster is. But yeah. I know I know who Tom Eldridge is, and that's that's him. And um, it's a process, you know. It starts with him. He went out on a boat in February. I got him a boat that was going out on a. Uh, it was a scalloper, but it was going out on a research trip. Yeah, he, they basically in ten to twelve foot seas for a week, and rode with those guys. Sat up in the wheelhouse with the captain. Got to drive the boat around out there and. That's the start of what he does. Um, moved in early, hung out with where fishermen hung out, picked his own costume and wore it and wore it out and uh, learned how to weld. Um, but he, he, I don't know that I've ever worked with someone who can convey more with, with less words. And uh, you just feel it's sincere it's real and not a lot of not a there's actors and then there's there's actors and and um he's he's in a league he's in a very rare uh company i think yeah i mean he's able to convey as you said so much just a little there's some moments of humor and levity he can do if it's intensity seriousness uh mm -hmm. and a lot of Spoken moments. Speaking of unspoken moments, there, I think in many ways that the strength of the film, Toby Wallace is very good. Um, obviously, the whole cast is really good, but Tommy Lee Jones, I mean, with Tommy Lee Jones and Ben Foster together, you're really getting um, a sense of intensity on screen and real power. And it's all about fathers and sons. So let's talk about Tommy Lee Jones. I've been here with Barry Sonnenfeld, who's a great director, obviously, and very funny. And Barry said when he did uh, Men in Black with Tommy Lee Jones, because he he's wonderful. But the only problem was he kept making the noise when he'd shoot the gun. Like, pew, pew. I'm like, no, no, we don't. We had that in post, Tommy. He said, <laughs> but he said he wasn't as cantankerous as you might think. No, he said, 
I think if, if you're not prepared, there's an issue. He's going to let you know. But what did yeah. you think, Lee Jones, as far as directing him on set? Well, <clears throat> he's doesn't want his time wasted, right? He's a, he's he brings you something that not a lot of actors are going to bring you in that kind of a role and that uh, gravitas in a way. And it's not up for grabs. It's not like it's here when you want it. It's like <laughs> here it is, and it's a rarity. It's a it's a it's not to be taken lightly. And we better look like we know what we're doing and not be wasting not his time but not waste his talent and uh, his his gift that he has in a way, which he protects and, and defends, you know. But you'd heard enough about being prepared, and we're professional. I've done enough films. The crew, and the crew, we want him to impress him, right? So it's not even, it's not just like, here he comes, he's going to be in a, trying to figure out who doesn't know what they're doing. You know? <laughs> We come into it going, Tommy Lee Jones is coming. We better have our A game going, right? You know? And um, so we're all like hoping we pass his test in a way. And when we do, we're all we're all excited about it, you know. And if you don't, it's a you got a story to tell and it's a badge of honor in a way. Um, but he's uh he's uh, one in, he's one of a kind, really, you know. I don't know who when there's no more Tommy Lee Jones, I don't, who, who takes his place? I don't. There's no one out there he's, that does what he does. Yeah. And how did you find when you would direct him? Like when you would give him different options, was he amenable to, or did he find like he already kind of had his ideas in mind? He had. He had. Like every actor, he he comes. And every prepared actor, uh, you want them coming in with their thoughts and their because you don't have time for everything, and and you you leave the character with that actor hoping that they'll look after it and come up with uh, lots of stuff. And he, so like any actor, he had a set way that he thought it should be played, mm -hmm. um, which is the Tommy Lee Jones kind of way, which is why we hired him. So the, I mean, I don't direct him really. I'd say a little to your left or a little to your right. Right. But, but if I'm going over saying, no, 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 not like that, <laughs> we have a huge problem, you know, and um, but if I had something to say, he would listen to it. And he because I had been a fisherman as a kid and right. grew up in that world. And my father was a fisherman. He took me more seriously than he might have if I just, hey, I found this great script. I really like it. it's about fishermen. Yeah. Uh, and so I had a natural authority, I think, as. A person who knew what they were talking about and he wants to have it feel like it's real and i know what's real and what isn't as far as certain elements of it so yeah uh, it was like that well that's one of my favorite parts of finest kind is, is all your work you really feel the authenticity to it and i said i looked up you're from providence i said okay brian probably did some fishing as a kid so you've now confirmed that and I just think the certain jargon, right? There's a certain way when you were, you know, in this town, the scallops are gold when they were picking at the fish. I said, you know, Brian has to have known this world. Like, I, I don't, it'd be very hard, as you said, to read a book, write the script. Like, it's, it really kind of comes across as intrinsic. Yeah. Well, I mean, the joke is, is I was the technical advisor also. So um, it gave me a great, uh, it gave me a great sort of, like I said, a, a director needs to have some sense of authority because someone's got to be driving that truck, you know. And um, but that 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 was also between having written the script and having fished, um, I didn't. People didn't. They they thought I knew what I was talking about. So 
<laughs> What's uh, an aspect of fishing that people underappreciate? I think people know it's very hard, it's time-consuming, it's early, but what's something that they don't realize unless you do it? Well, it's that in this kind of, this isn't fishing where you get up at five in the morning and you're home at 10 at night. It's, you're out to, it's deep sea fishing. Right. So you're at sea, like an old fashioned at sea and um, seven days, 10 days. And there's no cell service out in the North Atlantic. And <laughs> you're not talking to your family. And right. so that crew becomes your family. Um in a strong way. And if it doesn't get along and it doesn't work, it's miserable out there. And if it does work and you, there is a kind of family out there, it's a, it's kind of a wonderful thing. And it's, it's a strange way to live. And then you go home to your other family, which is your family you live with on shore, you know, and it's, it's a strange life. You have, you live two completely different lives. Yeah. Why do you, th I mean, I, especially, I thought it was interesting when, when, you know, or his character, uh, is willing to risk it a little bit, going the different waters, right? The Canadian Coast Guard's there is watching and stuff. But I always find that fascinating. Like, how do they regulate? How do you know where the Canadian water is and where the American water is? It's always amazing to me. Yeah, well, you have it all on the... There used to be um, a different system. Now it's all GPS and it's right. all... That kind of, so it's very accurate. And it used to be on, I think it was called Loran and... Um, but you have it, you have plotters and you have the... You can see the border and... And and we, for, for better or worse, we used to do that when I was fishing. We'd go up to Canada, or right. Canada, but to the to the keg line, it's called, and and uh, jump over it. And sometimes Canadian boats, because scallops move around, people don't realize they they. And sometimes it would be Canadian boats coming over onto the American side, but you'd keep an eye on the little blip that was the Coast Guard, and 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 know that you could get away with it, you know. Yeah, and unfortunately, they don't get away with it. So, <laughs> yeah. damn Canadians! Uh, I don't know, and it's a wonderful thing because he's doing it because he's trying to one up his dad. So the motivation right. is very personal. It's not just simply like, "Hey, we're poachers and we're going to go." You know, he wants to come home to, as a better fisherman than his dad is. I mean, you're a great writer. You won an Academy Award. You live and you die. It's the in between that counts. Where'd you come up with that line? You heard it a few times in the movie. I just came up with it. Um, I think it might be, you never know what you've read or heard that might have informed it, but it, it felt like there's, you know, I, there's important moments in life and and um, how you zig or zag around them define a lot of things going uh, further down the line. And um, it just felt like a way to express that. And it sounds really good. And I'm not sure when you really analyze it, it makes too much sense. But it's, <laughs> it, makes, it makes sense in this movie anyways. <clears throat> uh, why do you think it is, again, being a guy from Providence, and again, with your previous work, Mystic River obviously is brilliant. And I've talked to Dennis Lehane about it. I see, you know, I love that line. Is that my daughter in there? I never know. Was that actually in the book or the script? He goes, no, it's actually in the book. And Brian did adapt it into the movie as well. But I yeah. said, what is it? New England and crime stories like why why the departed uh the town like wh why is that such a fertile area I think it's I think it's because it's still a place where you're from the neighborhood right. um and that the neighbor it's clannish in a way you know it's it's a lot of people in this neighborhood do this for a living well we all understand each other we all know each other you date my kiss my cousin's 
brother and you you know it's still a place that's there's not a lot of movement in it you know it's not like people coming and going or people heading off to go somewhere else like right uh, you live in los angeles and no one's from there you know it's like if you live in some little neighborhood south of boston it's like there we're all from here you know and i think it creates an odd interesting kind of curious dynamic between characters and it's this it's something fascinating something it's medieval almost i gotta ask you something about la confidential you won the academy award i i tried reading elroy's book i don't know if i got through it but it, it's so dense like i don't even know how you adapt it that's that's a big thing to me i'm like how the heck did you adapt that it's a brilliant movie i love it but i don't know how you did it yeah no i mean like uh there's so much crazy plot and and avenues and I mean, the first rule was if it didn't have one of the three main characters in the scene, it was out. Well, so this, good. these 20 pages are out. These 20 pages are out. And then trying right. to take all that and then mix it all back together again and see where now all the holes are because you threw a bunch of stuff out. Yeah. And it's almost that movie is writing. It's like the, it's like the story of the dam that in Holland that starts to leak and someone puts their finger in the hole and then another one comes and you put your finger in that hole. And before you know it, you got 20 people with fingers. And, and so every time you fix something and made something work, it would, it would, some, <laughs> another, another hole would spring. So we were just trying to get it to make sense mostly. And uh, uh, I was going to say, you definitely deserve that Oscar just for trying to make sense of it all. And it's, uh, it's one of the best. <laughs> best and it's really held up well. I mean, you and Curtis Hanson, that whole cast, it's amazing. This movie is amazing, too. It's called Finest Kind. I encourage everyone to go check it out. Do we have a distribution deal yet? It's playing at TIFF in Toronto. Is there a distribution deal yeah, yet? It's Paramount. Okay, so it'll be on Paramount sometime this fall, I assume. Again, Ben Foster, Toby Walls, Tommy Lee Jones. Love Jenna Ortega, by the way. We didn't get to her, but she's terrific. I I, I only knew her work from that show um, where she's playing The Adams Family. Like, she was actually yeah. really, really good in the movie. Really well done. So, uh, Fathers and Sons and Fishing. Well done, Brian Helgland. Thanks so much, man. Thank you. All right, thanks so much to Chris Cody, producing In Absentia. He still edited this and put this together. Thank you, as always, to Metal Arc Media. And thank you to the audience at large, all of you. It is very, very much appreciated. Go watch JFK. Go watch Naked Lunch. And make sure you look out for Finest Kind from Academy Award winner Brian Helgeland when it's available on Paramount Plus or available in theaters. Next week, the great Scott Rogowski will be here to talk about the 50th anniversary of Last Tango in Paris. Also going to try to go see Dumb Money, a movie I'm really looking forward to going to see. Paul Dano among a terrific all-star cast. It got excellent reviews at the Toronto International Film Festival. All that more coming up on Cinephile. Again, past episodes, Spinelli and Cabby coming up. Rags, Adam Amin, I'll see you at the movies. <laughs>